Hello, everyone, and welcome to Functional Fertility, the podcast designed to demystify your hormones, up-level your lifestyle, and supercharge your fertility potential. I'm your host, Dr. Kalia Waddles, and today's episode is all about you. This episode is dedicated to answering your top fertility questions. Thanks to everyone who submitted their questions on my Instagram. It was really fun to see what's on your mind, and I'm looking forward to giving you my hot takes on these great questions. So let's get right into it. Our first question comes in from Lauren. She asked how testosterone therapy affects male fertility and if it was true that testosterone therapy causes sterility in men. This is a great question and one I receive in my messages all the time. It usually is something, you know, the male partner is on testosterone therapy. Maybe this couple has been trying to conceive for several months and nobody has talked to them about the fertility effects of testosterone therapy. A man might be prescribed testosterone because of symptoms like decreased libido or erectile dysfunction. These things are going to come up as you're trying to get pregnant. So this is the time frame when someone might seek care for these issues. They might see their primary care doc. They might see a urologist. Let me tell you why this can be problematic and why testosterone therapy actually has a contraceptive effect in men. So men have a signal that comes from the brain the hypothalamus to be specific. And this is called gonadotropin-releasing hormone, or GNRH. GNRH then tells the pituitary gland to produce two different hormones, luteinizing hormone and follicle-stimulating hormone. If you've been in the fertility world for a while, you're probably really familiar with those hormones because they're really important for female reproductive physiology as well. But men make them too. They have different function in a male body, but these hormones are responsible for triggering the testes to produce testosterone and to produce sperm. When we give testosterone from an outside source, what happens is what we call a negative feedback loop. And this means that the high testosterone level is actually detected by the brain. And if the brain senses that elevated testosterone, there's really no reason to send out more gonadotropin-releasing hormone. There's no reason to stimulate the testes to make more testosterone. It already sees that testosterone is high. So it's essentially tricking the brain into thinking that the testes have already been stimulated enough. In reality, that connection between the brain and the testes has been overridden by that what we call exogenous or outside testosterone. So we're going to see that spermatogenesis, which is sperm production, is inhibited or suppressed. This effect usually happens within the first four months or so of using testosterone. So you can imagine if a couple's been trying to conceive and this uh, male partner has been on testosterone for four, six, maybe even more than six months, it's pretty likely that they're not making many sperm, if any. For these reasons, both the Endocrine Society and the American Urological Society recommend against the use of testosterone therapy in any men who are desiring fertility in the next six to 12 months. So I know the natural next question is, well, is his fertility going to return when he discontinues the testosterone? And the answer is likely yes. But of course, like anything in medicine, there are a few caveats. So... There is a really great study that was published on this, one pretty recently in 2019, and it showed that after discontinuing testosterone, most men will reverse that suppression of sperm production in about four months. 
some men started producing sperm sooner and others took up to two years to return to their baseline level. There's probably some additional factors going on here, lifestyle factors. We know that men who started with a lower sperm count took longer to return to baseline. And as men got older in general, it took longer for their sperm to return. It's interesting to note that there is a growing, an an increase in prevalence of men using testosterone therapy who were between the ages of 18 and 45. That's typically the age range where we see men who are desiring fertility. And some really great studies have come out showing that many men are prescribed testosterone. They've never had a baseline semen analysis. Sometimes they never even had their testosterone measured before they were prescribed testosterone. They were prescribed this hormone therapy based on symptoms alone. So then it's really hard to understand how the therapy is changing their their semen parameters when we didn't have any baseline reading. So I think this is really, really, really important. As men are working to restore their fertility as they discontinue their testosterone, they may need some additional medications to help restore that process that we call spermatogenesis or sperm production. So we've talked about FSH and LH and how important those hormones are for male reproductive physiology. And and we can actually use those as injectables. So we can inject FSH and LH, which will stimulate the testes to return to their normal function. We can also use HCG, human chorionic gonadotropin, which I know you're familiar with that one in the fertility world because that's the pregnancy hormone. That's what we detect on a pregnancy test. We can actually use that as an injectable in men because it looks structurally very similar to luteinizing hormone. So it can, again, stimulate the testes to make testosterone without that same inhibiting effect as the testosterone. We can also use clomiphene citrate or clomid, another one that you may be familiar with because it's often used for ovulation induction in women. And oftentimes these medications are used together. I'll just add, if you're needing, if you're feeling discouraged at all and you're needing a little boost, we know that when the right medications are used at the right time, we see pretty good pregnancy rates. So it's important to work with a fertility specialist or in this case, a fertility urologist who works with hormones all the time and feels comfortable managing these medications in men who are desiring fertility. Maybe at another point, we should talk about some lifestyle factors, some nutraceuticals, some botanicals to support healthy testosterone levels. But oftentimes, if testosterone is very low, the lifestyle factors and the botanicals, they're just going to take longer to work. So um, setting those healthy expectations and really doing a thorough intake to understand what our patient's goals are before we start any therapy is going to be really, really important. Okay, our next question comes in from Molly. Molly asked, can low iron be a cause of recurrent miscarriage? So first I wanted to briefly highlight some of iron's most important roles in fertility because this is a fertility mineral all-star. We really need healthy iron levels. It's iron's job to deliver oxygen to tissues throughout our entire body, but that includes the uterus and the ovaries. And over time, chronic oxygen deprivation, because our iron is low, can really take a toll on our egg quality. 
I also want to talk about granulosa cells. I talk about these all the time. They're my favorite little cells. I call them the ovarian helper cells or the egg cell helper cells. They surround and nourish our egg cells within the ovary, and they actually require iron to function. So this makes iron a really important resource for egg growth and development. So now we see iron coming into play not only for egg quality, but also for egg maturation. This relationship between iron and our granulosa cells could be one reason why iron deficiency has been associated with ovulatory infertility, meaning ovulation isn't happening. It's not uncommon that I would see patients who were not ovulating regularly and I would do their iron studies and I would look at ferritin in particular, which is a storage form of iron, and it would be absolutely in the tank, like way, way, way below the reference range and the patient's not ovulating. So this is something that is well borne out in the research and something that I see in real life all the time. Adequate iron levels are also really important for our endometrium, that inner layer of the uterus. We really need iron to help build a nice, fluffy endometrium, which makes a cozy spot for our little embryos to latch onto. Even beyond the ovulation piece and the egg health piece, iron is essential for placental and fetal development. And severe iron deficiency can cause adverse pregnancy outcomes like preterm labor, even fetal loss. So as you can see, I'm building this case that we really need to be mindful of our iron going into pregnancy. Really, really relevant to this question is a study that was published in 2021, and it looked at the relationship between ferritin and miscarriage history in women with recurrent pregnancy loss. So let me just take a step back and tell you about ferritin. I mentioned that it's a storage form of iron. But when I'm talking to patients about this, I describe the iron that's in your red blood cells, that's like your checking account. But your ferritin, that's like your iron savings account. And we really want to have funds available in each of these accounts. So ferritin is a marker of iron status that we often use in clinical practice. And this study looked at ferritin in 84 women with a history of recurrent pregnancy loss and 153 women who had no known fertility issues. The researchers then followed these women for two years, tracking their history of pregnancy loss, whether or not they were able to get pregnant again, and how long it took them to conceive when they were trying. They found that the women with recurrent pregnancy loss had significantly lower ferritin levels than the group with no fertility issues. In fact, many of the women in that group, in the recurrent pregnancy loss group, had a ferritin that was below 30. And just to give you some context here, I typically like to see ferritin in the 60 to 80 range. Some docs like to get it closer to 100, but I've seen tons of patients with a super low ferritin. I'm talking six or seven, like below 10, and they're really, really struggling to get and stay pregnant. The researchers in the study also reported an inverse relationship between ferritin levels and the number of pregnancy losses. So that means the lower the ferritin, the higher the number of pregnancy losses that they observed. This particular study didn't show that low ferritin caused problems with getting pregnant, only staying pregnant. But from my experience, I would say I've really seen issues on both sides of this equation. The other, I would say, limitation to this study is that it didn't show how those same women responded if they received iron supplementation. Did that improve their outcomes? Were they able to get and stay pregnant? This study didn't show those results, but I've seen this many, many times. 
Uh, someone comes in with a really low ferritin, we start to replete them. Their pregnancy outcomes are much better. Uh, I always want to optimize iron status before trying to conceive, which is why our preconception lab work is so important, looking at uh, an iron panel, looking at ferritin. And when I see patients with a low iron, I immediately want to know what their diet looks like. What kind of foods are they eating, food sources of iron? I want to make sure that they don't have any bleeding going on. Is there some bleeding going on internally that's causing blood loss, which would lower iron? Is there a GI bleed? I also like to check in with their menses to see, do they have super heavy bleeding? One piece I think is often overlooked or forgotten about is stomach acid. We think about this in the functional medicine world all the time because stomach acid or hydrochloric acid is really important for the absorption of many different nutrients, protein, B12, vitamin C, iron, calcium, magnesium, zinc, low stomach acid. It just happens as we get older. We have a lower stomach acid, chronic stress. This is why I tell patients don't eat in front of the TV while you're watching the news. Try not to eat in the car while you're working in front of your laptop. We know that some medications can lower our stomach acid. And if you're wondering, if you're sitting there wondering, well, how, I wonder what's going on with my stomach acid, some common symptoms to look out for are things like bloating after meals, indigestion or heartburn, nausea, especially after you take your vitamins because they're so mineral rich, dilated blood vessels in the face if you have rosacea, that's one thing to look out for, even acne, undigested food in the stool, lots of food allergies. These are red flags for me that stomach acid is low. So when I'm working with a patient who has low iron, I am asking these questions, trying to understand what's going on with their gut health, because that's really important. That's actually one reason I personally had low iron is because I also had hypochlorhydria or low hydrochloric acid. So when we need to replete someone with iron, I like to do a combination of iron-rich foods, which I, I actually combine with sources of vitamin C to enhance absorption. We can use a supplement. I like a ferrous bisglycinate personally. Um, my favorite brand is Needed, the Needed Prenatal Iron. It's super nice because they have a guide on their website that shows you how many capsules you'll need to take based on your current ferritin level. So you can be really specific in repleting iron in a dose that is appropriate for you. Sometimes we even need to do IV iron. If someone's iron status is really, really low and we need to give them a boost, then we may need to do short-term IV therapy. So there's plenty of things we can do, both at looking at the underlying drivers of the iron deficiency and then calling upon all of these strategies to replete their minerals. Our next question comes from Samantha, who wanted to know what prenatal vitamin I recommend. This may be my most commonly asked question. And over the years, I've tried so many different prenatal vitamins. As you can imagine, I recommend a prenatal vitamin to every single patient I see. And I've been taking prenatal vitamins for maybe the last 15 years myself. It's really important to me that I both use and recommend products that are effective safe and made with integrity. That's why I was really excited when I found the brand Needed. And I've recently partnered with my friends at Needed who have sponsored today's episode to build awareness around high quality perinatal supplements. Needed is my favorite brand of prenatal supplements because I know I can trust the ingredients and they've clearly been formulated with real moms and moms to be in mind. 
I've been taking the prenatal vitamins, the egg quality support, and the sleep support personally. And one of my favorite features of the needed products is that the prenatal multi is available both in capsules and this really easy to take vanilla powder that's perfect for those nauseous moms or those who have pill fatigue. I really wish this powder would have existed when I was first pregnant nine years ago because I was so nauseous and I felt so guilty that I wasn't able to take my prenatal vitamin. But this one is really good. I've been mixing it into my coffee, which makes it taste like a vanilla latte. I've been mixing it into smoothies. It just makes it really simple to get that extra boost of nutrition. Even more, I feel really confident that Needed has been recommended by a collective of more than 4,000 doctors, midwives, doulas, and nutritionists. And the environmental impact is also really important. And Needed is proud to be the first prenatal nutrition company that's B Corp and climate neutral certified. That is a huge win. If you're feeling like you'd like to add Needed to your prenatal wellness routine, we can offer a discount with the code functional fertility. So head over to thisisneeded.com and use code functional fertility for 20% off your first month of needed products. Again, that's thisisneeded.com and use code functional fertility for 20% off your first month of needed products. They have your prenatal vitamins, they have the iron that I just talked about, and a whole spectrum of other supplements to support your journey in preconception, pregnancy postpartum and beyond. So definitely check that out. I really trust this brand. All right, we'll shift gears a little bit and talk about our next question. This one came in from Amy. Amy asked, do you count spotting as cycle day one? I know this comes up all the time when you're filling out your cycle charts, you're trying to decide what's cycle day one, because you know that I am going to order your labs, your FSH, your LH, and your estradiol on cycle day three. So this is really important to get our timing right. And spotting does not count. Cycle day one is your first day of full flow. This is bright red bleeding that will likely require require more than just a panty liner. So spotting, sometimes you don't need a panty liner. You don't need anything. It comes and goes. Like you might spot for a couple hours and then it goes away and then it comes back. That does not count as cycle day one. However, on the flip side, sometimes you might wake up and you have spotting maybe for a little while, then it goes away. And then later in the day, it turns into a more heavy flow. That's totally fine. You can count that as your cycle day one because we see that heavy flow that's bright red. It's consistent. It requires more than a panty liner. As you're charting, even though we're not going to count spotting as day one, I do think it's really important that you do chart that on your app or your cycle tracker or whatever it is that you're using to document your cycle because it does help us to understand what's going on with your progesterone, for example. Do you have enough progesterone to support your endometrium through your luteal phase? But for timing of labs, when I say you need to go in and get your cycle day three labs, we want to make sure that cycle day one was that first day of full flow. Okay, our next question coming in from Sandra. Sandra asked how to increase egg white cervical fluid, that coveted fertile quality cervical fluid that we're all looking for to let us know that we're about to ovulate. So just to recap, if you're listening and you're not sure why you should care about egg white cervical fluid, this is the sign that our fertile window is open. So once you see that egg white cervical fluid, you are going to want to have sex so that 
sperm is waiting when you ovulate and that egg comes down the female reproductive tract, you already have a reservoir of sperm waiting. Egg white cervical fluid actually creates what I call a sperm superhighway that directs sperm exactly where they need to go so that they can fertilize your egg. When I'm working with patients and I tell them you need to start observing and looking for your egg white cervical fluid, sometimes they realize that they're not making very much and they want to know how what they can do to really get that fertile quality cervical fluid. So I have a top, my top five suggestions that I make. The first one seems really simple. It's hydration. And I know that seems like it's the answer to everything, but we know that fertile cervical fluid is 95 to 99% water. So if you're dehydrated, your cervical fluid is really, it's going to suffer. A general rule of thumb for hydration is half your body weight in ounces. So let's say you weigh 150 pounds, that's 75 ounces of water. We may need to alter that based on your activity level or if you're sweating, but that's a really great place to start. If you're chronically dehydrated, you'll notice your cervical fluid is more dry, your skin is more dry, your joints aren't as mobile. So hydration is really important for fertility and beyond. The next thing that I recommend often is acupuncture. And I think acupuncture is such a beautiful way to support your fertility just in general, but it can be really helpful for your cervical fluid in particular because of the way that it increases pelvic blood flow. When we are encouraging healthy blood flow through our pelvis, that supports healthy fluid secretion, which is obviously really relevant in this case. There are some other ways that you can support healthy pelvic blood flow, things like yoga, abdominal massage, but because there are so many benefits of acupuncture, not only for your cervical fluid, but also for endometrial thickening, for hormones, for supporting a healthy luteal phase, I think this is a really worthwhile investment. I also want to talk about one of my favorite supplements here. This is N-acetylcysteine or NAC. This is probably my favorite fertility supplement if I had to choose just one. And the reason why it works so well for cervical fluid is because it is a mucolytic, meaning it thins secretions. It thins mucus. This is one reason why people tend to use it if someone has a cold or a sinus infection or sinus congestion because it really can thin mucus all over the body. It is an excellent support for cervical fluid. It's also one of my favorite egg health support supplements because it's also a powerful antioxidant. So this one seems like a win-win. It has so many helpful fertility actions. I usually dose this one in a capsule. They tend to come in 600 milligrams. So I'll do 600 milligrams three times per day. But of course, talk to your own doctor about the dosing that is right for you. My fourth recommendation here is fatty acids. We know that essential fatty acids are often used to support cervical fluid. There is a long historical use of supporting our cervical fluid with healthy dietary fats, um, particularly to get that coveted egg white texture. So fish oils and lots of omega-3s are great. I tend to have most of my preconception patients on a really high quality uh, omega-3 supplement. But similarly, Evening primrose oil, which I, I get questions about with some frequency, this is a rich source of gamma linolenic acid, which is an omega-6 fatty acid. And when used in the follicular phase of the cycle, which is 
day one, cycle day one until ovulation. Um, when we use it in that first half of the cycle, it can help to increase lubrication and mucus production. I will say in my clinical experience, this one's kind of hit or miss. It either works really, really well, or we don't see much of a difference. So I think this is worth a, a shot for a couple cycles. And then if it's not working, that's fine. There's many other things that we can do, um, but it's something to consider. And then finally, I wanted to call out this energy balance piece, meaning what is your caloric intake in relation to your caloric expenditure? Because sometimes when our energy balance gets very low, maybe we're getting busy during the day, we're forgetting to eat, or maybe we're exercising quite frequently and our caloric intake isn't matching that level of expenditure, our estrogen can suffer. And estrogen is the hormone that is most prevalent in the first half of the cycle, and it is responsible for that egg white texture, that egg white quality of our cervical fluid. So when it comes to really emphasizing that fertile cervical fluid, that egg white texture, we have to think about the things that affect estrogen production. So just making sure that our body has all the energy it needs to do these energetically expensive processes. Okay, our last question of the day comes from Tara. Tara asked, should I avoid alcohol when trying to conceive? There, I will say, there is not definitive evidence that a certain amount of alcohol is going to cause fertility issues. And I tend to be a realist. Like if you're having a glass of wine every week or not even maybe every couple of weeks when you go to some social event, I'm not likely to recommend you to discontinue that because it's not chronic in nature and your own inherent detox abilities are probably able to deal with that exposure pretty well. There are really individual ways that we react to alcohol. There's this whole concept of biochemical individuality. And that means that every individual is going to metabolize alcohol differently. It's going to impact their body systems in unique ways. So this is really something that you know you should talk to your doctor about and really hash out how often you're using alcohol and how alcohol makes you feel and how that fits into your fertility lifestyle. So I will say that while the data is pretty limited here, from the from the data that we do have, it appears that women who consume alcohol um, in general may experience some reduced fecundability. And fecundability means the probability of achieving a pregnancy within one menstrual cycle compared to women who abstain completely. Now, this effect does seem to be dose dependent. So the more alcohol consumed, the more of an effect it seems to have. And a 2021 study analyzed alcohol consumption and pregnancy rates in almost 100,000 women, so a pretty big sample size. And the researchers found that when compared to non-drinkers, light drinking, which was less than one drink per day, was associated with an 11% decrease in fecundability. So these women were still considered light drinkers, less than one drink per day, but still we saw an effect on their probability of achieving pregnancy within one menstrual cycle. That number actually um, increased to 23% reduced likelihood of conceiving in those who consumed more than one drink per day. So as you can see, there does seem to be a dose-dependent relationship between alcohol consumption and the likelihood that you'll conceive, but this is really looking at 
alcohol consumption every single day. If we look to the IVF setting and women who are undergoing fertility treatment, again, there seems to be in a relationship uh, between alcohol consumption and pregnancy rates, especially in women who have more than six drinks per week. This study that was published in December of 2022 found that compared to women who did not drink any alcohol, those who drank more than six alcoholic beverages per week had a 7% decrease in their likelihood to conceive following their IVF cycle. A similar effect here was actually noted in male partners. Live birth rates decreased 9% in men who consumed more than six drinks weekly. So like I said, there is there appears to be some relationship here, but it's pretty obviously dose dependent. And being in a social, social situation or going to a holiday party where you have a glass of wine or going to a birthday party is pretty low on my list of priorities if you're using alcohol responsibly and your body seems to feel okay after that exposure. But it's something that's really important to think about and I think also gives us an opportunity to look at our relationship to alcohol and kind of what purpose that's serving in our life and if there's some fertility-friendly method that would be more appropriate for us in this season. All right, everyone, I had so much fun answering your questions this week. Thank you to everyone who participated and for all of our listeners. Thank you to Paola Martini, our show's producer, and thank you to this episode's sponsor, Needed. I look forward to seeing you all next time. Thanks so much. Did you love this episode and want to hear more? Head over to drkaliawaddles.com slash podcast where you can find more episodes on all things fertility.